seated. Looks can be deceiving. We routinely rely on our sight to determine what is true, forgetting often that what we see, although it's rooted and grounded in objective reality, must be interpreted. So no one, no one object can be viewed objectively as if from a place of neutrality. We are taught how to interpret what we see, first by our parents and then by the broader culture, and hopefully, ultimately, by the Word of God. But sin, being what it is, our interpretations of what we see are not always correct. Looks can be deceiving. And as we approach this second point in Jesus' Bread of Life sermon, there are two ways that people are deceived by what they see. First, we are deceived about what we see concerning Jesus' ministry when we don't look at it from the perspective of God. If success is the measure of a man's ministry, then Jesus' success is not very great. The people see, but they don't believe. But Jesus answers this by holding back the curtain so that we can see the certainty of God's plan through the gift and calling of the Father and the magnetism of the Son. In that way, as He opens up and shows us what's going on behind His ministry, what's happening behind the scenes, why is it that some see but don't believe, while others see and believe? What causes that? And second, we also see in the crowd's response the disappointing response of unbelief that sees only what it wants to see, what it believes fits with its own grid of interpreting the world, what you might call a worldview. It sees something and it interprets it based on that worldview. And what it sees in Jesus is somebody who is not successful. Somebody who's not quite the Messiah that they're hoping for. So, as you're able, please stand with me as we read from the Gospel according to John. In chapter 6, we're continuing to work our way through Jesus' Bread of Life sermon. We're going to pick up this morning at verse 37 of chapter 6 and read to verse 48. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. Let me remind you that these are the very words of God. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father." that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. These are the words of God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus, for his magnetism that draws us because you have gifted us to him and you have called us by your Spirit so that we who see also believe. Father, for all those here who see but yet do not believe, grant to them eyes of faith that they may this morning look and see your glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his strong name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's as if Jesus is answering an objection before one is even raised. If you looked at the context, especially verse 36, he says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. We talked about that last week, that they had seen the signs. They had seen the signs that signified the Messiah, and they'd even seen the Messiah. He was right there in front of them, and yet they still do not believe. They are deceived by what they see. And on the surface, Jesus is answering the objection that how can that be? How can it be that in the very presence of Christ, the bread that came down from heaven, how is it possible that there are people who see and yet do not believe? How is it that his ministry is so unsuccessful? How is it that he's speaking to this crowd and they don't believe? So verse 36 to 40 opens up for us the plan and the purpose both of the Father which will be executed by the Son. And not surprisingly, this elicits grumbling from the crowd. But they begin to fixate on just one aspect of what he said. How can, how can he say that he came down from heaven? We know where he was born. We know his parents. He's from the sticks. But undeterred, Jesus returns to unpack his high theology as he explains that the presence of unbelief in the crowd, verse 44. And along the way, we are treated to Jesus' thoughts on election, on effectual calling, on the triumph of faith, and the ultimate destination of all those who have looked on the Son and believed eternal life. Seeing in that way eliminates the possibility of being deceived simply because you see with the eyes of faith. I'm going to flow through this text in a more systematic way, looking first at what Jesus teaches concerning the Father. And then we'll talk about the mission of the Son. And then we'll look at the response that the crowd makes, closing it out with the silent member of the Trinity who pervades this whole text. So first, the gift and calling of the Father. Jesus seems to anticipate a possible objection. How can this be a response to verse 35 through 36? And I said before, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How can somebody say that and not have a flock of people coming to him and seeing and believing? But Jesus condemns their their faithless response by saying in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And if Jesus is who he says he is, and the people see him, how do we account for their unbelief? To understand that, we need to peer back into the eternity past to see God's Trinitarian plan of redemption. And that starts with the Father's gift to the Son. In eternity past, the Father gave a gift to His Son, a people. Notice in verse 37, all that the Father gives me. The Father gives the Son a people. He says in the same Gospel of John in chapter 17, verse 6, in his high priestly prayer, praying to his Father, he said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus has been deeded a gift of people. Not the whole world, but a people out of the world. God the Father gave them to Him. These are your people. A definite number with names and faces that Jesus recognizes. He continues in His high priestly prayer to say that He is not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And again in John 10, 14, He says, I am the good shepherd I know my own, and my own know me. He knows us. He knows you, and He has saved you by name. He has called you Glenn, and Janet, and Dale, and Kristen, and Marianne, and Bill, and Larry. And He knows you all by name. Meaning that when we See Him. He's not going to walk by you and mistake you. He's not going to walk by and have to double take like, oh, oh, that's right, you're one of the ones I I died for. He's going to walk by you and He's going to say, welcome. And He's going to call you by name because He knows you. Because you are a part of that definite people that the Father gave Him. The doctrine of election is, of course, a high mystery, one that belongs to God. And not for us to peer into or to understand, as Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord. The things that have been revealed belong to us. And often we ask, why? Why did God choose me and not someone else? But that's, that's not really a good question to ask. And first... You don't know that he hasn't chosen that someone else. That knowledge belongs to God alone. Certain as we may be that so-and-so is a Christian, all of us have been shocked by behavior that some have later exhibited in their life. Further, if all the sins of many eminent men, including myself, before I came to Christ were here displayed for you, you would run in horror. You would be shocked to see 
sins of men, they were displayed for you. The only reason God reveals anything of His plan and decrees to us is merely to provide us with comfort and assurance. For God's election does not rest on anything in you, any supposed good thing that you might do, nor even of the faith or perseverance in faith that you might have. God's election rests on the counsel of His own holy will and all for the praise of His glory. It's unconditional election. And He chooses whomever He pleases, and He does not stoop to tell us why, except that it pleases Him. There are then two points that the doctrine of election makes. One, that you are absolutely passive in the matter. And also that that He will accomplish it through His Son, All that is necessary for your salvation. Both that you are passive and that He will fully accomplish what your election is based on, is for. We'll return to that later point when we look more at the magnetism of Christ in a moment. But your election to salvation from the foundation of the world thankfully does not rest on you. Which is why we call it unconditional election. You could reasonably say that God chose you despite who you are and what you will do, and not because of those things. We often get this mistaken idea that in order for us to be saved, we need to first clean ourselves up and look the part. Then God will save us. If I, if I just obey the law, if I just do enough good things, if I'm nice and not mean to people, God will choose me. Nothing could be further from the truth and nothing could diminish the grace and mercy of a loving God who stooped to call you not because you were good, not because you were even lovely, but because He knew He was going to make you lovely and good in and through His Son. Besides, Even if you wanted, even if you tried your hardest, you could never make yourself good enough to be in the presence of God. All of your efforts would pale in comparison when you stood before absolutely terrible holiness. And you would see them for what they really are. Again, Going back always to this idea, what do dead people do? They certainly don't make themselves alive. Man is dead in sin and awaits the voice of God to shine light into the darkness of his heart and to call him out of death into the glorious light of his Son. And so the doctrine which so naturally follows election is called effectual calling. Which we see displayed for us in verse 37 and verse 44. In verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Will definitely come. There are no people that the Father has given to the Son that will not come to the Son. There's no mistakes in God's plan. The people whom He has elected, He calls and He justifies and He sanctifies and He glorifies. 
There are no mistakes along the way. You cannot disrupt the perfect plans of God, even with your sins. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draw is like hauling something, like a load. And it's like, it's like roping a, a horse that's going in an opposite direction and getting the noose around it and pulling it towards the person, right? It's hauling something that's going in the wrong direction and snatching it out so that it goes the right direction. The Father draws people. He calls them and they come to the Son. And no one else comes to the Son who's not drawn. How is it this this crowd who sees Jesus face to face, how is it that they don't believe? Jesus is telling you. He's telling us. It's because the Father has not gifted them to the Son. It's because they're not drawn to the Son by the Father. It's because they are not elected. It's because God has not called them. And in this drawing, we see both the surety of it happening alongside our inability to make it happen. We're going in the opposite direction. We're dead And we need somebody to come and snatch us out of the grave. We need someone to draw us to Christ. We cannot do it on our own. We are enable. And I I dare say that some knowledge of both is necessary in all who come to faith in Jesus. Knowing that you could not save yourself. Knowing that you were dead. And rejoicing also that God drew you to His Son. Amen? Amen. And here we take the context. And this crowd, they have handled and touched and they've heard and seen the eternal Word of God, the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and yet they still do not believe. And here, in election and calling, Jesus pulls back the curtain. And I think it's for us And for his disciples later on, as they're puzzling this out, as they're trying to figure out, why do we believe and they don't? Why did we respond? Why were our hearts burning when we talked with Jesus? And why were others not? How did they see and yet still not believe? And Jesus says, it goes all the way back to the foundations of the world. It goes back to the people that my Father gave me. So it's, it's showing the absurdity of their unbelief. And Jesus gives them an account of what that is. But, it, but it, also, it also teaches us, if you have been drawn to Christ, that's because the Father has drawn you. And it rests on His eternal purpose and election. And therefore, again, it does not rest on you. Nothing we can do. We need the enlivening grace of God to respond to the call of the gospel and come to Jesus Christ. And the the Father is the one who will most assuredly accomplish 
what we are incapable of doing ourselves. Namely, coming to Christ and seeing and believing. So as long as you remain convinced that you can come to Christ apart from the Father drawing you, you will be filled with pride. Until you fall in sin and you realize that your ability to keep coming to Christ rests on a very tenuous thread. A thread that dangles like a spider web over hell and the eternal wrath of God. Except in that analogy, we make the thread a highway. And we think it's broad and we think we can pass on our own. And we look down on someone else. And we say with the public, and God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's the person who believes that they can come to Jesus apart from the Father drawing them. I don't need that step. I can go all on my own. But it's only when we recognize our inability that you can cry out with a tax collector, God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And it's that man who went down to his house justified. Not because he had a humble estimation of himself, but because he realized he could not save himself. And he looked in faith to another. And looking at that, in retrospect, that God has drawn you to His Son means that If you are drawn to the Son, you can be assured that the Father is the one that drew you. We just reason our way backwards. Why is it that Christ is so compelling to me? Why do I want to be so near Him? It's because the Father has drawn me. Which is because the Father has given me to the Son from before the foundations of the world. When you're tempted to look at yourself and discover their only sin... And when you are yourself repulsed by what you see, then you can arm yourself with this reminder. I have come to Christ. And if that is so, it is because the Father has drawn me. And if the Father has drawn me to His Son, then He's given me as a gift to His Son. And His Son will accomplish everything that He promised. And the Son will never cast me out, but will raise me up. On the last day. And it is, it is to the magnetism and redemption of the Son that we turn to now. For if the Father has gifted you to the Son, He's also gifted the Son to you. Do you see that? The Father gave a people to His Son. And by doing that, He also gave His Son to you, His people. And Jesus, He tells them what's, what He's going to do. I've deliberately chosen the word magnetism to describe the sun. Magnets both attract and oppose. Ask Steve sometime why that is. They attract and they oppose. But also, once attracted to and connected with, they hold fast. You could think of it this way. The natural state of all men is to be repelled by Christ's magnetic field. But through effectual calling, the Holy Spirit reverses your polarity and you're drawn to Christ. He makes you immediately attracted to Him. And once you are stuck to Him, He will never let you go. Verse 37. Indeed, it is the Father's will that He not lose any who have come to Him. Verse 39. 
What a comfort to weary sinners that Jesus will never cast us out. Concealed in in the Greek in this text is a double negative. I will never, never cast them out. Why does Jesus say this? Why does he add this little statement in verse 37? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why is that there? It's there because we need to hear it. It's there because we are constantly coming up with objections for why Jesus should cast us out. For if we were not prone to think that Jesus would readily cast us out, then he would have no reason to say it. But whether through sins or doubts or anxiety, we are, we are so prone to rehearse all the reasons why we don't belong to the people gifted to the Son by the Father. I'm not good enough to come to Christ because I've done this or that sin. I've slept with my boyfriend before we were married. Or because I, I'm addicted to pornography. Or I'm, a, I'm addicted to food. I can't come to Christ because I just repented of that sin yesterday and then I did it again today. I must not be one of Christ because look, I was an alcoholic. I used to beat my wife because I cheated and I lied to get ahead on my job because I don't like other people. On and on and on we rehearse reasons why Jesus should cast us out. And the loudest objections you can raise. And as often as you try, the word of Christ will always come ringing back saying, I will never cast you out. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I highly recommend, said this. Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. End quote. We say, but I. And he says, I will never cast you out. We say, but I. And he says, but I will never cast you out. And again and again, he reminds us, I will never cast you out. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The essential truth behind this statement is that Jesus will not fail to accomplish the will of the Father. Verse 39. Not one person given to Jesus by the Father will be lost. We call this the perseverance of the saints. The P in the tulip. But as with other terms in that acronym, this could be articulated better. It can sound like we will persevere. But what lies behind that great doctrine of comfort is not that we persevere and remain faithful, but that God perseveres with us. It means that despite our sins, our backsliding, our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. For Jesus will never cast us out or never lose us. And this promise of Jesus carries you from the initial coming to Him all the way to your final breath. As we sung in the 
that hymn was so appropriate. How firm a foundation. E'en down to old age. His promises remain sure and steadfast. Both in your initial calling until that time when He calls you home. For that which is given to the Son by the Father, He will raise up on the last day to eternal life. Herein lies our hope. For what He has promised has been guaranteed in His own resurrection from the dead. Listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Him. Christ led the way to the resurrection life through His sacrificial death on the cross. All those who look on the Son and believe. Notice in verse 40. Looking on Jesus is a reference to Jesus' statement earlier in, this, in John's Gospel that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. John three fourteen and 15. Which he later interpreted by saying, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. John 12. Israel grumbled and complained in the wilderness and God sent a plague of fiery serpents to bite them. But along with the plague, He also sent a way of escape. It was a a bronze serpent impaled upon a pole. And all of Israel was to come and to look upon the serpent. And they would be healed. They were to look on a substitute. Somebody who would die in their place. Somebody who would take their spot. And Jesus said, just like that, I will be lifted up on the cross. And all those who believe in me, who look to me, will have eternal life. They will be freed from the bondage of sin and death. Everyone who looks on the Son and is not deceived by what he sees, but believes. Everyone who looks with the eyes of faith. Those who look and see their sins. That Jesus took them and gave him their, his righteousness. Those who who look on Him who knew no sin but became sin for us, might not have to face eternal judgment, but will instead be given the gift of eternal life. But remember, looks can be deceiving. And all this crowd seems to see is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Verse 41 and 42. And I, I have to say, after peeling back the curtain and giving them a glimpse of the deep theology that undergirds this bread of life sermon, this is highly disappointing. That this is their response to the majesty of the gospel that he just proclaimed. 
After hearing the sovereign plan of God to save a people through His Son, a salvation so secure, nothing could keep Jesus from accomplishing it. And this is their response? But as disappointing as their unbelief is, it only confirms what Jesus had just explained. For how could they believe unless it had been first granted by the Father? Their unbelief only serves to confirm His message. And it betrays the hardness of their own hearts. For no one can come unless the Father draws them. And only then does Jesus give the response of those drawn by God by pointing back to the new covenant promises found in the prophets. There's a a direct quote from Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by God, which is further brought out in the new covenant promise that was given to Jeremiah, which we read. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And I want you to notice verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them, that's children, to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. And here is the Word of God. God in the flesh. Do you see what John is drawing out? John is is showing us that Jesus is doing, He's fulfilling that promise right then. No longer do they need mediators like Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah to speak to them the Word of God because the Word of God is dwelling right there in their midst. He's speaking to them directly. And they're seeing Him. They're being taught by the Father. Jesus tells His disciples in chapter 14, if you've seen Me, you have seen the Father. He is the only mediator between God and man. But what's missing? What's missing from this this sermon, this point? What seems strangely absent? Not what, but who? Behind all the gifting and drawing, behind the magnetism and resurrection power is, of course, the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God the Father that draws all men to Christ. For it is the Spirit who knows the mind of God and makes Him known so that we are taught by the Father. And in coming to Christ, it is the Spirit of Christ that unites us to Him in an unshakable bond that cannot be broken. It is the Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son who takes away the heart of stone, causing blind eyes deceived in sin to be opened, to see the glory of God shining in Jesus' face. And it is the Spirit of God who makes us alive so that we come to Christ. It is the Spirit of Christ, that that great agent of new creation life that will raise us up out of the grave to life everlasting. For He takes the things of Christ and He makes them yours. And it is the Spirit of God who continues to reveal the Father through His Son to all the people He had chosen from the beginning to save. In these few verses, Jesus gives us a glimpse of every doctrine outlined in TULIP. Total depravity. Unlimited Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saint. Looks 
can be deceiving, but only to those who remain unable to come to Jesus. That's total depravity. Because they were not given to the Son to save. That's unconditional election and limited atonement. And therefore, they were never drawn by the Father to Him. That's irresistible grace. So that He would never cast them out. That's perseverance of the saints. But to those who look and believe, your inability to come to Jesus, total depravity, was removed through the drawing grace of the Father. Irresistible grace. So that Christ would save you, a definitive person with your name, not a faceless, nameless number. That's limited atonement. Because it was the Father's will. That's unconditional election. And He will never cast you out. That's perseverance of the saints. Looks can be deceiving. And it looks like Jesus' ministry is unsuccessful until you begin to pan out. And you see the bigger picture. And you see how God's great plan of redemption is still unfolding today. For we who have come to Christ have done so only through the gift and calling of the Father. Through the Spirit's magnetism of Christ whose promise remains the same. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for your great work of redemption that from the beginning to the end proclaimed over all of salvation is that it belongs unto you and unto you for all glory. Soli Deo Gloria. And we give you thanks. And we are amazed that you have called us and drawn us to Christ to come, knowing our inability, knowing that we could not save ourselves. You have promised to never cast us out. And we give you thanks that we can come to Christ and have full assurance that what he has begun in us, he will bring to completion And on that last day, will raise us up to be with him. We give you thanks and magnify your name for your great work in redemption. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.